because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. I'm recording this on April 15th, which was supposed to be tax day, but we're living in unusual times. So this year, tax day is July 15th. Uh, that's one good thing in a world where there are many not good things going on. There are still some good things going on, of course, but I think a lot of the policies in place, in addition to a very serious virus, are making things uh, a lot worse than they would need to be just based on the virus, which leads us into the topics today, which is going to be a combination of virus-related topics and energy related topics and overall human flourishing and human freedom related topics. So let's jump right into uh, the topics for today. Just uh, having a little bit of an issue with my interface for a second for those of you uh, listening. So here's the here are the topics. So topic number one is going to be a pro-freedom approach to fighting COVID-19, and that'll be the first one, so I'll I'll jump into more of what that means. Number two is my go-to COVID-19 commentators. Topic three is going to be the fallacy of COVID-19 and climate denial. So this is going to be on on one of the emerging intersections in terms of the uh, energy-climate debate uh, intersecting with the debate over what to do about covid And then finally, I want to talk about some new talking points on climate that I think that pro-energy politicians can use this election cycle and that that I'll encourage them uh, to use. So let's jump in. First topic is a pro-freedom approach to fighting COVID-19. So the first topic I want to talk about today is a pro-freedom approach to fighting COVID-19. There's a really pervasive assumption that I'm noticing in the conversation. And, you know, one way you can see it is that most of the people supporting lockdowns uh, in response to the coronavirus slash COVID-19, COVID-19 refers to the disease that manifests, but I'll just use that uh, in general. When, When people are talking about, I have serious concerns, that usually means, oh, I support the lockdowns and those should continue indefinitely. And then many times people, when saying I advocate freedom, uh, a lot of it is based on, well, I don't think COVID-19 is that serious, or at least I think it's less serious than some of the dire predictions that we hear. Now, I definitely think it's less serious than some of the most dire predictions we hear because I think there's systematic distortion that tends to exaggerate how... um, how big negatives are, and also to underestimate the capacity of free people to deal with it. But nevertheless, uh, I do think of this as a serious thing, and uh, I suspect, I don't think it's proven, but I will not at all be surprised if it ends up being much worse than the flu. It's obviously worse than the flu in terms of the concentration of it, so it's you know spreading quickly enough so that certain healthcare systems, although by no means all, are overloaded. But, you know, I want to say for today, like, let's assume it's five or 10 times more severe than the flu. And that would be a really, really big deal. Uh, What I'm going to say today is that still 
does not mean that lockdowns are good. And I'm going to refer to lockdowns as general imprisonment because I think that's what they really are. I mean, they're, they're imprisoning us in our homes. And I think that no matter what the severity, freedom is the right policy, but we need to have a proper understanding of freedom. And I think one thing that's totally missing from the discussion today is a proper understanding of freedom and how freedom, a policy of freedom, deals with infectious diseases, not just free people having ingenuity to fight them and to use their own judgment in avoiding or minimizing them. That's a big part of it, but also how uh, a policy of freedom includes defining rights to prohibit certain types of activities in terms of spreading infectious diseases. So let's jump back and just talk about what does a policy of freedom mean? Because sometimes, often people equate freedom with, well, everyone is free to do whatever they want to do. And that is not what freedom means. Uh, when we talk about a free society, when we talk about America being free, we don't mean, oh, everyone can do anything they want to do. It means that everyone is free but they're free to act within clearly defined rights. And rights, and particularly individual rights, is a crucial concept for understanding what freedom is. So rights are moral principles that they're defining our freedom of action with respect to other people, including the its limits, the limits of that freedom of action, so that everyone has the freedom of action they need to survive and flourish. One of the assumptions behind rights, and this is a big issue, and, and I'll be talking about, I have a guest, which I'll talk about in a minute, to talk about this more next week, but one of the key ideas around rights is that for human beings to survive and flourish, we need to create value. Value isn't just given to us, we need to actually create it, including uh, just creating the material sustenance and the material protection the protections from nature and different kinds of, including different kinds of diseases that we need to survive. That's not automatic. And so we need those values. We need to create them. And to create them, we need to be free to think and then to act on our thinking. And that, I believe, is really the basis uh, of rights. And so we freedom of action is fundamental to human flourishing. And so what rights are saying is we're defining principles so that you can take the actions, including engage in the thinking, that you need to create value and flourish, but we're defining it in such a way so that everyone uh, can do this. So an example is, or you know, if, if we think about you know what what a free countries include, it's not an accident they include specific prohibitions on things that are determined to be violations of rights. So for example, murder, theft, fraud. You wouldn't say, oh, well, it's it's not a free country because you can't murder anyone. No, it's murder is a violation of freedom. It's, it's a violation of the rights that are defined to protect freedom and to protect everyone's freedom. And, then, you know, killing somebody innocent directly is the most uh, direct violation of their rights because you can't be free uh, if you don't exist. So it's a really important point that being a free country includes specific prohibitions on things that violate rights, that is, they interfere with other people's rightful freedoms. And so let's this, this very idea applies to infectious diseases. A free country should definitely have specific prohibitions with regard to infectious diseases. So there are certain things with regard to infectious diseases that violate rights, and governments should prohibit them in the name of properly protecting people's freedom by properly defining rights. So for example, 
in a free country, you're not allowed, you don't have the quote freedom to create an infectious disease in a lab and then vaporize it in a public place. You know, if a foreign country does that, that's biological warfare. But domestically, you're not allowed uh, to do that because it's a violation of everybody's rights. It's a very direct interference with their lives and with their their freedom. And so now the tricky question is with regard to COVID-19, what specific actions constitute a violation of rights and should therefore be prohibited? And this is a this is not an easy question. And the I just the point I want to emphasize today is that being for freedom includes being for laws that prohibit certain things that are determined to be violations of of rights. And it's a it's a complex question. There are a lot of things involved. One thing that definitely needs to be involved is evidence of harm and really I think of unusual harm. So if we're talking about, you know, governments restricting certain kinds of behaviors, they really have to have evidence that those behaviors are causing, you know, other people to get this virus. Uh, it can't be, you know, speculation or it can't be vi- models with very questionable assumptions and then you start taking away everyone's freedom. But so one aspect is evidence, but there are a lot of different aspects. And fortunately, I have a really smart guy coming on to dis- to discuss in depth for a whole episode what a pro-freedom uh, approach to COVID-19 looks like. And the guest, he was actually, I think, the third guest on Power Hour. Uh, he was on nine years ago, Ankar Gatte, who's been a mentor of mine over the years, is the uh, head intellectual at the Ayn Rand Institute where I used to work. And he and I have been talking about this, about this issue some, and he's agreed to come on and talk about uh, what, you know, what a pro-freedom policy looks like. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But for what I, what I want to focus on today, which I think even if people just got this, it would be huge progress, is to focus on why having policies that, that make specific prohibitions, so prohibiting things that violate rights or that are determined to violate rights, why specific prohibitions are so much better than general imprisonment. So there's this narrative that, oh, if you're concerned about this disease, then you need to imprison everybody. And I just want to make the point, no, that is not even remotely true. It's actually an incredibly irrational policy to imprison everybody. So here's just some examples of what, you know, what I'm calling specific prohibitions uh, to protect rights, what those might look like. And these are just hypothetical because there's a whole question of what these should be, but I just want to show today how having specific prohibitions is much better and more fair and leads to much better outcomes and more human flourishing than general imprisonment uh, does. And I want to encourage everyone who is in any kind of position of influence, don't have this false alternative of either general imprisonment or government does nothing. It's much better to have specific prohibitions that are ultimately determined to violate people's rights. So one kind of thing is, okay, no coughing or sneezing within six feet of another person. That could be one. Or no going within six feet of another person at all during a particular stage of an outbreak. So one thing is you can you can prohibit things at different times depending on uh, the context. So you can say at one time something violates a right and another time it doesn't, just depending on the objective danger involved in the situation. Another one could be no going to a public place if you've experienced any COVID-19 uh, symptoms. And then a final one, 
and this is more extreme, but no going near someone in, in an elevated risk category if you haven't been tested. So elevated risk category could be people who are uh, elderly to a certain degree, people who are obese, people who have diabetes. And this, this would be an example of a prohibition that, is an, that involves what I've called selective isolation. So instead of saying, well, everybody has to follow all the same rules, everybody has to be isolated, you could say, well, no, this is a restriction uh, or a prohibition that prevents certain vulnerable people from coming in contact with others, uh, but it wouldn't forbid, for example, two 20-year-olds from coming in contact with one another. So part of how I think selective isolation should happen is there should be you want as, as specific policies that recognize that certain groups of people are under greater risk themselves and then also insofar as you're focused on the hospital system are at greater risk of overwhelming uh, the hospital system. So there are three uh, there are many many advantages, but I want to focus on three in terms of general imprisonment versus specific prohibitions. So number one is that general imprisonment deprives us deprives us of most of the freedom we need to flourish, whereas specific prohibitions leave us overall free to live our lives and flourish and just are prohibiting specific behaviors often that we can work around effectively. So for example, an example that's very uh, close to my heart here in Orange County, California, and really in California more broadly is at least in Orange County, like we're forbidden from going to any parks. So there are all these amazing wilderness areas, parks that we can hike around, walk our dogs around, get fresh air. And if you had a policy that said, okay, what's really dangerous at this particular time, at least, is being within six feet uh, of strangers. And so, or maybe of anyone. And so what we're going to say, okay, you can go to these places, of course, but you have to be six feet apart. And, you know, in general, we've seen people have been generally following this. Sometimes they don't, and then you can decide what to do about that. But that, okay, if you have that, then you can, most of the people can enjoy the parks. Maybe they'll go at different times. Maybe at any given time, it can accommodate fewer people. We can mostly work around that. Versus stay at home just means no, you cannot go to this park. So you're, if your health is and and well-being are really related to being able to go outside, which I definitely consider mine. Then the government's just saying, "Oh no, you can't go outside uh, because we've decided to imprison you." That's our solution. Whereas the rights-based approach says, "No, here's the specific thing that we believe threatens the rights of others, and so we're prohibiting that." So it's much much more rational. Or take doctors' offices. You have all these doctors' offices shut down. And it's, okay, let's say there are six feet of spacing, so maybe the doctor's offices can't take as many patients at a time, but they can still take patients, and people would be going in for what are called elective procedures, but those are often really vital uh, to their health. I have examples myself of things that I have some concern about, and so part of it is I can talk to the person over the phone, but I want, might want to be examined, and they're just saying, oh, no, indefinitely, no elective uh, procedures because you have to stay at home because we've decided that imprisonment is the way to deal with this. Advantage number two is that general imprisonment forces us to unnecessarily increase the danger we face from the virus, whereas specific prohibitions do not. So this is a really important point because there's assumption that, oh, if we imprison everyone in our homes, then that's a super at least yeah, it might screw people over in a lot of other areas, but at least it's a very reasonable policy to minimize the danger from the virus. But this is not at all true. It can't, 
Is it possibly true that just forcing people to stay together with inside with the people that they happen to be usually related to, that that's the optimal thing to do with a contagious virus that disproportionately affects certain populations, including older populations. So, uh, for example, and then there's a the whole outdoor element. So general imprisonment basically prevents us from going outside or it really limits that. Yet, yet uh, going outside is crucial for health in general, and it's almost certainly crucial, assuming you have proper spacing for lowering a COVID-19 risk. Because you just think about in general, viruses do worse in the summer and in, in the spring, in part because people are outside and sunlight and other things and warmth in general seem to be hostile to this virus and to a lot of viruses. So that seems to be a lot of why uh, again, viruses tend to go, there's a, you know, there's a cold and flu season, which tends to be people have people be more indoors. So they're basically saying, hey, yeah, you need to be imprisoned, which on top of ruining your life in a whole bunch of ways, you're actually going to be more susceptible to the virus in this respect. And then another one is that general imprisonment forces young, low-risk people uh, to contaminate their parents. So you think about what happened with uh, sending all the college kids home. And Surely some kids on campus would have been much better off on campus getting immunity themselves uh, and staying away from their parents who, particularly in America, where there are a lot of bad, uh, you know, they're, they're, like I think the average health in many ways is lower than other places because of uh, diet and lifestyle. Like they're getting, they're, they're putting their parents at risk. And again, this is part of the, the general imprisonment. I mean, it's in effect family imprisonment. Like the government's decided, yeah, let's, this seems convenient. Let's imprison everyone in their own homes and this is going to be optimal, but it's not. So if you had specific prohibitions against specific behaviors, but otherwise people were free, then young, young, low risk people could live together to develop immunity and they could protect their parents. So notice with, you know, before we had the, you know, the general one is that you know, with, with specific prohibitions, we have as much freedom as we can get, as much freedom as is uh, legitimate in a given context. So we get to do all those, all those smart things in general with our life. And then in terms of, and we also can avoid doing these stupid things that the government is forcing uh, on us. So those are the two, uh, first two advantages. And then the third advantage, and there are more than three, but I, and I'll focus on some more next week when I talk to Ankar Gatte. But number three is that specific prohibitions recognize that our, so this is a broader point, our primary means of dealing with this virus is the freedom to act according to our best judgment. It's crazy to me how freedom is viewed as a liability in general. It's like, oh, if only we were like China, you know, then we could get rid of this thing. And it's like, no, freedom is, that's our means of flourishing in general. That's what the government is supposed to protect. And that also is what unleashes all the ingenuity that allows us to protect ourselves uh, effectively. It's like people in the Middle Ages didn't have any any freedom and they, and they could lock anyone up they wanted to, but it didn't do them much good because they didn't have all of the developed knowledge and technology that free people later created. So one aspect is, free people, the more freedom we have, the more producers can produce effective, uh, you know, different kinds of ways of helping us with the virus. So different tests. And we see why is our testing so bad in large part because the government 
irrationally restricted testing. It said, well, in effect, testing for, for private people to test violates rights. And I think that's wrong. It's a violation of our rights to prevent us from developing tests and using tests according to our best judgment. Or, you know, you think of immunity reduction uh, methods. So different, you know, people can come up with, hey, are there different ways of um, um, immunity reduction? Sorry, that's actually the wrong, uh, that's that's a, an improper slide. I should it should be um, vulnerability reduction methods or increase or immunity uh, increasing methods. Or you can think of it as dosage reduction methods. So I talked about this last week, where, for example, it could be well people can come up with methods of maybe it's maybe even something like irrigating your sinuses can help in terms of the viral load, or maybe certain kinds of. Uh, you know, vitamin combinations can help and different people can experiment in different ways. And there are treatments. And of course, there's the, there's the, you know, different kinds of controversial treatments that the president talked about, and then they're getting criticism. But the more people are free, the more they can develop these things, and the more they can experiment uh, with these things. And then of course, protective gear, which is another thing where there are all kinds of restrictions on. So we need freedom to fight this virus, which means producers need to be free to produce. And then we also need freedom as patients to exercise our best judgment, both about what will help us with the virus, but as part of helping us with our overall lives. So for example, we need to, the more we think about freedom, the more we recognize, hey, we have the freedom, we need the freedom to make the right decisions for ourselves, and we also have the responsibility uh, to do this. The virus doesn't just impose itself on us and we're completely helpless. There's a ton that we can do to avoid it and to minimize it. So one thing I talked about last week is engaging in viral load reduction. I'm very interested in anything that decreases the the dosage. And one example I brought up was Robin Hansen, the economist, has been advocating what what's called variolation. So taking low doses, uh, actually exposing yourself to low doses of the virus, uh, like people used to do pre-vaccines, and we don't have a vaccine for uh, this coronavirus right now, and who knows when we'll have one. So that's the kind of thing. We need to be free to take those kinds of risks, but that's something that's incredibly uh, discouraged by governments. I don't know the exact state of law, but the point is we need to be free to do stuff like that, To and, and we have the responsibility to do it. Anything we can do to increase our health and immunity. And I was listening to one of my favorite commentators on this issue, David Katz and of Yale, and he was talking about how, you know, even even just on a day to day basis, changing your diet can help. Like it can help you a little bit. There are certain things you can do to even improve the way your body's functioning, even starting now. And of course, longer term things will help more. So we need the freedom to do this. And then we have the responsibility uh, to do this. And the more the government's focused on freedom, the more it's recognizing, hey, you as a patient are not just this helpless thing. You have the right and the responsibility to take the actions that you judge best. And that includes the responsibility to exercise the best judgment you can Another thing is trying different kinds of experimental drugs. You know, it's one thing to say, okay, this isn't proven, so not everyone should use it, or this isn't proven in a certain to a certain standard or universally, but any kind of these things where states are starting to prohibit specific drugs universally, that is hugely problematic. And we've seen with the FDA, the FDA just has so many prohibitions, whether it's for the producers or whether it's for the patients, and this is interfering with people uh, acting on their 
best judgment. And that's what we need to be able to do in life. And that's what we need to be able to do uh, with this virus in particular. So the bottom line is whatever the severity of COVID-19, we need to be free to act according to our own judgment. And that's true as individuals, it's true as producers, and it's true as as uh, patients. So the then policy-wise, this means we need a shift from the wholesale violation of rights and the destruction of freedom, which is occurring through general imprisonment. Uh, and we, we need to shift from that to the consistent protection of rights through specific prohibitions. So now when you're seeing these different kinds of plans that are being floated and these different discussions, think about no matter what the severity is, these lockdowns, this general general imprisonment is an incredibly irrational policy. It doesn't optimally protect us from this virus, and it certainly doesn't protect the freedom that we need to live and flourish. So, and it's possible to ha- it's possible to have policies where we are free and where our rights are defined in such a way that we really are protecting other people from really irrational and damaging things. But overall, we're leaving them free to live their lives. And so that's the ideal. And that's definitely possible. More on that, on the details of that next week. But if if you take nothing else, just general imprisonment is an irrational, immoral, unjust policy. And insofar as the government has evidence about different things being dangerous, it should have specific prohibitions that it can demonstrate are really violating people's rights, and then make those law. So that's, that's the policy there. And part of that is, just one final note, is all of this needs to be backed up with objective evidence, not just authority, not Gavin Newsom says, oh, I th- I think 56 million people will have this in eight weeks or whatever, whatever exactly he said. And not ignorance, not, oh, well, we don't really know what's going on, so we're just going to imprison you just to be safe. Uh and that's and or pseudoscience in terms of oh well I I just saw a model and the model said two million people are going to die or five and so that is a law like no you need a real you need much more significant evidence and one point that I've heard Ankar Gatte talk about and that I definitely agree with is that the less certainty the government has the less right it has to restrict our behavior. It can give guidelines and it can say, hey, here's here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what we advise. But it can't say, hey, we really have no idea how significant th- this is. We don't really know, for example, what the death rate is, but we're going to completely upend your lives. And that's part of the reason why you want specific prohibitions, because you wanted to say, okay, maybe we know enough to say, okay, don't go within six feet of people in this context. You want to do the things that are as low cost to people as possible, whereas the general imprisonment is saying, let's think of the worst thing that we can do that we know in specific ways will harm people in terms of protecting themselves from the virus and will ruin many, you know, tens of millions of people's lives and cause all sorts of mental health uh, problems and physical health problems. Like, and we're not certain about the evidence. That's exactly backward. Another perspective on a pro-freedom government is the government is our agent. It's our bodyguard. So it's supposed to be helping us and, and protecting us in terms of giving us the freedom to achieve our different goals, including protecting us when from other people when they're genuinely uh, out of line. But it's got to be really careful about what does it really mean 
to be out of line. So it needs a really it needs objective evidence, not authority, ignorance, or pseudoscience. One more note, you can probably tell I'm worked up about this, is that this idea of a pro-freedom government that is defining individual rights, this, and we'll talk about this next week, this is really the key to resolving the false alternative of do we save lives or do we, quote, protect the economy? Now, part of that is protecting the economy is saving lives. So that's one aspect of it. But the real thing is that the government should not be picking winners and losers among individuals. It should not be sacrificing some individuals to others and saying, oh, your life matters and your life doesn't. The government is supposed to define rights in a fair way that gives all of us uh, the freedom that we need. And then we have the right to make different kinds of decisions and, and take on different kinds of risks. And you could think of an example like cancer. We wouldn't say the government, can the government like imprison us to say, well, we, our goal, we want to save lives from cancer. We're going to minimize cancer risk. And so, yeah, you all get, you all get imprisoned. Now, of course, that's going to hurt, quote, the economy, but the real thing is, no, this is immorally depriving people of freedom. And if the government thinks it has good ideas about avoiding cancer, it can say it. And the government can prohibit things like you're not allowed to expose your neighbor to X amount of radiation because that could cause uh, cancer, or you're not allowed to fraudulently cover up information that something causes cancer. So it needs to define rights, but otherwise it leaves us free to deal with cancer risk uh, on our own. Its, its goal is not to save our lives or to save some people's lives. It's to protect everybody's freedom. So ultimately, this, this freedom and rights-based policy gives everyone the freedom and the responsibility to live their own lives as they judge best. And it does not allow the government to say, oh, I think this 80-year-old's three months in the ICU is more important than your restaurant. That's, that's, that is not an American philosophy. And there's no way of some third party weighing it and saying, hey, which matters more, this or this? In a free society, ultimately that's up to the choices of individuals, including, and this is a bigger subject that we'll talk about next week, next week including how much do you, you know, what do individuals choose in terms of how much they want to pay for health care, how they want to take care of their health. They need to make these kinds of decisions, but they should not be free to force others to pay for their mistakes. Okay, that is a pro-freedom approach to COVID-19 and specifically why general imprisonment is always the wrong policy and why no matter what the severity is, we want to be looking at what specific prohibitions are violating rights and therefore what, 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 specific, uh, what specific prohibitions can we pass to protect people's rights. Next topic, my go-to COVID-19 commentators. And this, this relates in that these are commentators that I think give us a lot of the context that we need to determine what kinds of behavior should be prohibited and what shouldn't be. I mentioned earlier on, and I mentioned last week, a guy named David Katz. I think his website is davidkatzmd.com. I find him to be a very valuable commentator. He is, I would definitely think of him politically as a collectivist and so not having a freedom and rights-based approach, although he, he does say some nice things about there is no such thing as the public individuals matter. So I disagree with him on his political philosophy, but 
he is good in terms of, I think he's really honestly trying to grapple with the data. He acknowledges where things are certain versus uncertain, and he at least has the common sense and humanity to advocate what I would call selective isolation type policy. So to recognize there are very different risk profiles for different groups and to say that there's something deeply wrong with just generally imprisoning everybody with something where the risks are disproportionately to some group of people who there must be some way to isolate them more versus everybody's life uh, gets ruined. So I don't want to put words into his mouth, but I find him, what I like about him is he is, I think he's, he's really honestly grappling with it. He acknowledges degrees of certainty and uncertainty, and he really is concerned with human flourishing in a more collective way than I think of it. But nevertheless, he's focused on on human flourishing. And I think fairness versus just saying, oh, the only thing that matters is the most vulnerable people and everyone else doesn't matter, which has guided a lot of our policy. Uh, a guy specifically, I've, I might have mentioned, I think I mentioned him last week as well, but you can check him out on Twitter, uh, Amish Adalja. It's A-M-E-S-H-A-A. That's his at. So at uh, A-M-E-S-H-A-A. And his Twitter profile says, Infectious Disease MD, Working on Pandemic Policy, Emerging Infections, Preventing Bioterror. So Amish, uh, like we have similar philosophical backgrounds and we actually met through uh, through that. We, we've met at different kinds of uh, organizations for people who are interested in Ayn Rand's philosophy, uh, aka objectivist philosophy. And I, I had Amish on the program several years ago, and he had some really valuable stuff to say about infectious diseases. And I particularly like him because I think he's a very, uh, he's very thoughtful and nuanced in terms of the accuracy of different claims. So he's some, he's someone that when I'm looking for, okay, what's the actual status of some news story I heard? I find him to be very objective and he doesn't sort of have a predictable position of either inclination toward either catastrophizing the virus or underplaying the virus. So I really value his objectivity. Uh, another guy, Jay Bhattacharya, you look up, so the la his last name, his first name is J-A-Y and then last name is B-H-A-T-T-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. If you look up, he has a great video interview. If you look up Jay Bhattacharya Hoover Institution, I think it is, and it's with Peter Robinson, Uncommon Knowledge. If you look up those, you'll definitely find them. It's got about a million views, maybe a little less as of this recording. And that is really remarkable in terms of just really being careful about what is and isn't known. And also, like I'm praising David Katz, being uh, really thinking of everybody's well-being and flourishing, not just thinking of some specific group of people. And because Jay, has, I believe he has a PhD in economics, he's good at at just thinking about the broader ramifications of different kinds of policies. And he's also a big champion of testing, as is David Katz. So that's, that is just so valuable. And so still, we're in such a backward position in terms of testing because we so much of we, what we need to make rational policy is to actually know how deadly is this in what doses to what people. Like If we know that, there's a lot that we can do policy-wise. If we don't know that, then it encourages the kind of panic and overreach that's happening. Uh, John 
Ioannidis, I think I've also talked about him. He's also, uh, Jay, is, Jay Bhattacharya is at Stanford, as is John Ioannidis. Stanford seems to have a lot of good people on this issue. And he is, his whole focus has been on the data we have is bad and really looking for better data and focusing on what is the actual risk of this to different population groups. And he's really been uh, pointing out that it's it's not that there's no risk to younger population groups, at least, let's say, uh, 30s. It's sort of remarkably low risk to young people, really young people, and much lower risk as far as I can tell than the flu is to really young people. But he's just he's really good at looking for good data and at pointing out problems with the methodology that a lot of other people are using. And in general, he's known in the scientific community as pointing out bad methodology in all kinds of scientific research. So he's somebody I really admire and find useful. Uh, I'm one of these guys I mentioned, so Ankar Gatte and Gregory Salmieri. Ankar spelled, for those of you listening, not watching, O-N-K-A-R space G-H-A-T-E, and then Gregory Salmieri, or Greg Salmieri. Salmieri is S-A-L-M-I-E-R-I. And so these guys are both objectivist philosophers, so in objectivism is uh, Ayn Rand's philosophical perspective, and they're two of the best alive. I've worked with both of them on my energy work, and I've found them very thoughtful on this issue. So if you look up them and pandemic, then or them and COVID probably, but just look up that, their names and pandemic, you'll see some really valuable discussions by them. Now, one final guy that I've just started following recently, and so he's interesting because he's a journalist. His name is Alex Berenson, and I don't know as much about his background or track record than I do uh, about the others that I've I've mentioned. Uh, but so there's somewhat of so I mean, but what I really like about him is he is very very focused on what is the actual evidence. Of very, on how being very specific about how deadly this is, and then how deadly it is in different kinds of locations. What kinds of policies are necessary in different locations? And part of it is he's really questioned lockdowns, and he's given some of the arguments that I've given. He definitely didn't get them from me, and in part I got some of mine from him. But he's really been explaining, hey, these lockdowns don't make sense in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of evidence that they're not at all the best way to do things. I mean, logically, we know that they're not, but that even they're not even as effective as you might think. And he's also just very, very by default pro-freedom. But his folk, he hasn't been one of the people who said throughout, oh, this is no big deal. In fact, I just saw a tweet of his retweeted by somebody a month or maybe five weeks ago, and he was considerably more alarmed then than he is now. So that's not to say that his, his evaluation of the danger is more accurate now. That's that's hard for me to say. But he's somebody who's really interested in, in understanding the danger of it in a specific way, specific in terms of the precision of the dangers, but also location-specific types of things. And he's very aware of the irrationality and the costs of lockdowns. And so that's something I really appreciate, and I, I enjoy reading him. So hopefully some of those commentators will be valuable uh, valuable for you as well. And if you have any that you recommend that you think are consistently good in terms of their methodology, uh, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. The next topic I want to cover is what I'm calling the fallacy of COVID-19 and climate denial. So this is an 
an emerging issue that I that I'm seeing a lot more of. So I wanna I wanna start to address it now because it's going to be a big uh, talking point, and it's the idea that just as we you know allegedly kind of conservatives broadly speaking uh, denied the threat of covid-19 and now we're in a disaster situation so by denying catastrophic climate change from fossil fuels so we're going to cause another catastrophe type situation so there's a graphic i saw uh, circulated by some people on you know different kinds of climate people uh, on Twitter, I'm not sure who originated it, but it's uh, it's revealing of a certain kind of argument. And I would say there is a tiny amount of truth to this argument, but there's more untruth to this argument. So uh, I'll just read through the different uh, parts, particularly for those of you not viewing. So it's got the five stages of denial, and then on the left it has coronavirus, and on the right it has uh, climate change. So stage one. It's not happening. So it's a quote, and I don't I haven't even verified these quotes. So I'll just give the quotes and then the attribution. And in one of these there's ellipses, so you know, dot dot dot. So who knows what that means? But uh so stage one, it's not happening. The Democrats are politicizing the coronavirus. This is their new hoax, Donald Trump. And then on climate change, it's a hoax. I think the scientists are having a lot of fun. Uh Donald Trump. So on the climate ones in particular, I'm noticing that they're certainly not they're certainly not uh, accurately representing Donald Trump in terms of their like of all the things he ever said. They're picking out the things that are kind of most inflammatory toward uh, this person. So that's a kind of common thing, but it's it's noteworthy that you know that's what they're doing here. Um, stage two, it's not our fault. Uh, China is to blame because the culture where people eat bats and snakes and dogs and things like that, these viruses are transmitted from the animals to the people. Senator John Cornyn. Well, I'm not sure to what extent that's been ruled out. That's that's a legitimate kind of point to think about, okay, if it emerged in China, how did it emerge? And so there is an element of, yeah, it's not fully our fault. Now, we've done a bunch of things. And so I'm very critical of, I should say here, I am critical you know, very critical of the response of almost all elected officials to coronavirus in terms of not acknowledging it properly at the beginning and then uh, very quickly going to universal lockdown slash universal isolation slash general imprisonment policies. So in terms of, and the testing is a complete mess. So I have tons and tons of criticism of what's been happening uh, from just about all elected officials. So this is not, I mean, none of this is, and and I also don't, I don't agree with the way that uh, many elected officials, including many Republicans, think about climate. Although overall, I think their approach is much, much better than that of uh, Democrats for reasons I'll uh, go into in a minute. And so then, okay, stage two, it's not our fault. So there's the one from Cornyn about coronavirus. And then, um, on climate change, China does not do anything to help climate change. They burn everything you could burn. They couldn't care less. Donald Trump. Okay, well, there's something to that. I mean, China is very focused on building more energy production, including more coal capacity in its country. 
you know, in China and around the world. And so that is a fact. Stage three, it's not that bad. One day, like a miracle, it will disappear. Uh, Donald Trump. And then climate change, the climate, it's in brackets. I don't know exactly what he said, but we'll change back Donald Trump. Stage four, solutions are too costly. Uh, coronavirus, we cannot let the cure be worse than the problem itself. Okay, well, that's a generally good idea, although there's a problem with how collective it is viewed as well. We're viewing just the U.S. as a whole. And as I talked about in the last, in, in, the se- in, in the earlier segment, this power hour, the key is really to think about the job of the government as protecting freedom and defining rights that protect everyone equally versus choosing some people over others. But there is still, leg- I mean, if you're, to the extent people are thinking of it collectively, it's definitely legitimate to say we can't let the cure be worse than the problem itself. And then on climate change, I think the climate change is just a very, very expensive form of tax. Donald Trump. Okay, well, there's definitely something to that. And then stage five, it's too late. Uh, It is going to spread further, and I must level with you. Many more families are going to lose loved ones before their time. Boris Johnson. And then on climate change, the climate apocalypse is coming to prepare for it. We need to admit that we can't prevent it. Author Jonathan uh, Franzen. So where to start here? I mean, so one thing, I think the main thing is that it's giving a false alternative for how to think about the issue in terms of how to think about coronavirus and how to think about climate change. So one, I mean, one thing is it's equating the threats involved. And so that's one problem. Uh, But another problem is I believe that the mainstream way of thinking about both of these is flawed, although I think the coronavirus is a much bigger threat than climate change. And so the way that it's flawed, it, it goes to this term of denier. And so this, uh, there's this alternative of you're a believer in catastrophe who wants to take extreme coercive action. So in the case of uh, coronavirus, you want to lock everyone down. And in the case of rising CO2 levels, you want to outlaw fossil fuel use in the next several decades, which is 80% of the world's energy. So in, in both cases, you have this idea of either you believe in this thing that's a catastrophe that requires massive government coercion, or you deny that there's any issue at all. And I gave a talk about this a couple of years ago, which you can find on YouTube, which is called How to Be a Climate Thinker. And it, it goes against this idea of, okay, you believe in a threat or you deny a threat. The key is you think about the threat. And the key is you think about it in context. So you weigh, is there a threat, but also how significant is the threat? And then part of that is how significant is the threat uh, compared to the benefits that come along with the threat? Or from a different perspective, how significant is the threat uh, compared to the cost, to, compared to your plan for addressing the threat. So if you look at the climate issue, the quote denier position, I think if you want to, if you want to talk about like the quote denier position, talk about people who like it's their full-time job to make these kinds of arguments for using fossil fuels. And those of us who do that, including me, but including you know, different kinds of uh, climate scientists and economists who advocate 
continued and sometimes expanded use of fossil fuels, our position is not usual, is definitely not there's no human caused climate influence slash climate change. Most of us do believe that we influence climate, but our belief is, one of our beliefs is that the cost of stopping that change by lowering CO2 emissions significantly is far greater than the cost of those changes. So any negatives from rising CO2 levels uh, are far less than the negatives that would result from trying to lower CO2 levels. Or you can think of it as the side effects of fossil fuels are far, far less than the unique benefits. So that's, that's the position. So to characterize it as denier is wrong, I would say, and people who have my position would say, no, we're climate thinkers. We think about the risks of rising CO2 levels, but we think about them in the context of the unique benefits of fossil fuels. And it's a whole subject about how big are those risks, but that's, I just, it's important to understand the position. The position is not, the position of most people who support fossil fuels is not denying impact or influence on climate. It's, it's saying that the benefits that come along with it are worth it. And so if you're going to engage that position, engage it, but don't act like all of us who say this just deny uh, science. And on the coronavirus thing, it's the same thing. Yeah, there are, so there are people on climate who just sort of say, yeah, there's no impact uh, at all. And uh, President Trump, at least before he was president, definitely said things to this effect that I, I don't agree with. But what he often said and has said since that I do agree with is that the costs the, the plans for addressing this, such as the Green New Deal, are catastrophic and far worse than any problem. And on that, I think he's absolutely right. So when he says, I don't know if this is an exact quote, but he talks about climate change is just a very, very expensive form of tax, as I'll show some data in a minute. I think that's definitely true. And if you look at coronavirus, there's a similar thing where people are saying, oh, if you don't advocate universal lockdowns, then you are denying the threat. And again, there has been real denial of the threat by a lot of different people. And there has been catastrophizing of the threat. And the key is we want to be coronavirus or COVID-19 thinkers. So I would like, I aspire to be a climate thinker and a virus thinker. And I reject this idea of, oh, I'm a versus being a catastrophist. And a catastrophist is somebody who can only focus on the negatives um, and then can, and in this, in the coronavirus case, it's only focused on the negatives of alleged negatives of leaving people free that they think it'll lead to more cases of coronavirus, but they don't focus on the positives of how beneficial it is to people's lives to be free. And with climate, they don't focus on the benefits of, of fossil fuel use. So again, I think the coronavirus negatives are much more significant and much more negative, but there's still this, this approach of being, a catastrophist. So instead of thinking of it as a denier or a believer, think of it as you want to be a thinker versus a catastrophist. And so I just want to show you a little bit of the data that shows what it means to be a climate thinker. And the number one piece of data that everyone ignores because they don't have an answer to it is this data I'm showing on the screen, the data about climate-related deaths. So you can think of it as climate mortality, which shows that over the last 100 years, the rate of climate-related deaths, storms, flood, heat, cold, et cetera, has gone down by a factor of 50. It's decreased by 
0.1%. As emissions have risen, as the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has risen, climate-related deaths have plummeted. And it's plummeted including during a 30-plus year period when the when the media's designated experts predicted catastrophic loss of life. So this is a really important fact that it's supposed to be incredibly deadly and yet it hasn't been deadly. And my argument has been it's a combination of two things. The overwhelming factor is that having low-cost energy from fossil fuels has allowed us to overcome massive natural climate danger. So as I'll sometimes put it, nature doesn't give us a safe climate, we make dangerous. It gives us a dangerous climate we need to make safe. And low-cost energy from fossil fuels is crucial to making it safe, whether it's irrigation systems to protect us from drought or construction to build sturdy buildings or heat, you know, heating and coal, um, you know, climate control to protect us from extreme heat, extreme cold, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The whole climate we have a whole climate protection infrastructure that is powered by low cost uh, energy. And so that's part of being a climate thinker is you think not just about the general benefits of, of low cost energy from fossil fuels, but you even think about the climate related benefits, which so far have totally outweighed any climate related negatives. And so that's part of it. And the other, so one is just the benefits of fossil fuels. And the other is whatever the side effects have been, They've been way smaller than predicted and not nearly significant to even overwhelm the benefits in the realm of climate. And another part of the context to be a climate thinker is that you recognize that fossil fuels are overwhelmingly the world's energy of choice. They're the largest form of energy use, so they're 80% of the world's energy. And for years and years and years, they've been the fastest growing year over year. If you take like the last five years so this year is going to be weird because we're having just a huge destruction and energy use, unfortunately, which hurts a whole bunch of things. But if you look at it, sort of any slice of time over the past several years, even and going back further, year over year, you're getting more increase from fossil fuel use than from anything else. So you have to recognize if you're a climate thinker, energy, low cost energy has incredible benefits. And there's something about fossil fuels that makes them really, really good at producing that. And yet most climate believers, they're against fossil fuels and they don't recognize the unique benefits, but they're also against nuclear. And one of the litmus tests for anyone who talks about like, oh, I'm not a denier is do you support nuclear energy? And if they don't, or if they give some hemming and hawing or some vague support, then they're not at all serious. So just a little bit more context. So that's kind of about the benefits of it. And then in terms of the, you know, can understanding the side effect of rising CO2 levels, there's just, these are some points I, I like to make just about being a thinker. So part of being a thinker is you want to know with precision, okay, what is this effect and how does it work? Sort of like with Corona stuff, you want to know, okay, how significant is the different kinds of danger? And so the greenhouse effect, most people don't know, it's a diminishing effect or what you can call a decelerating effect or technically a logarithmic effect. So what that means is that every new molecule of CO2 has less warming power than the last. So in general, all things being equal, you expect the warming to slow over time, whereas most people expect it to accelerate and go out of control. So that's one thing to keep in mind that should make one non-alarmed about rising CO2 levels. 
Another thing is if we look at the actual amount of rise that we've had, temperature rise, and we compare it to just the amount of temperature rise and fall we're de- we, you know, we deal with in a place like New York. So I have a graph that just shows uh, New York temperatures fluctuating throughout the year and day by day even. And you see, we're just used to these huge temperature changes and being okay in all these temperature changes. And then on the right, it's just a graph and it shows you in context, there's just a one degree Celsius temperature change, about two degrees Fahrenheit. That's just not that significant. And again, as we add more CO2, all things being equal, we should expect less of a warming influence per molecule of CO2. Another perspective that reinforces this overall idea of the greenhouse effect is a real effect, but not a catastrophic effect, is that if you look at history, uh, you look at CO2 levels, CO2 levels today are one-fifteenth of what they've been at many points in history where life flourished, and then temperatures are 25 degrees Fahrenheit cooler than they've been at many periods where life on Earth flourished. So there's no reason to think that us changing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% of the atmosphere to 0.04% and then up, you know, heading toward 0.05% and beyond, that that is anything resembling, oh, it's going to destroy the Earth, it's going to cause a catastrophe. And what I want to keep emphasizing here is this is what it means to be a climate thinker, to look at all the different pieces of the context and to look at them with precision instead of just saying binary things like, oh, I believe this is a threat, therefore we have to have a massive government uh, restriction of behavior. And that's the similarity between coronavirus and uh, and this. But with climate, we don't even really know. And this is going to be a controversial statement. You don't need to agree with what I'm about to say to agree with the general perspective. But I don't think we can say at all that even the rising CO2 has been a net negative because there's a lot of benefits from global greening in terms of the earth getting greener. And there are a lot of benefits that people get from warmer climates, uh, particularly because the way warming works, it tends to be warm the colder parts of the world and warm at night. So it tends to be times and places where people want it warm. So there, anytime you're changing a whole system, there are going to be positives and negatives, but I don't think we even have any evidence that it's a net negative. I don't think we can really know. What we do know is that the benefit of low-cost energy for billions of people is completely overwhelming compared to these other things. So this is what it means to be a climate thinker. And then just one more piece of context is if we look at sea level rises, which are supposed to be unprecedented, if you look at a graph of them, and this I use a graph from Wikipedia, which is super biased against fossil fuels, but not even they have removed this graph. And you see that tens of, you know, 10, 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago, we had much rap, more rapid sea level rises than we do, did today, than we do today. And it's really leveled off. So it may have maybe slightly faster than it was 100 years ago, but these are levels that we can totally uh, deal with. So again, we are, it's not, I'm denying change, I'm denying impact, but I'm contextualizing it. And what you that's the way to think about it, whatever it is. So if I found out tomorrow certain climate impacts are much more disturbing than I thought, I still need to use the contextualizing methodology. Okay, so that is the addressing this uh, denier fallacy. So we don't want to be COVID-19 deniers, definitely not with that issue, but we want to be COVID-19 thinkers, and we don't want to be climate deniers, we want to be climate thinkers. And in both cases, essential to that is contextualizing it. Okay, final segment today. 
And this, this transitions nicely because we're talking about something that we're just talking about something where this denier attack is used to attack Republicans on climate issues and more broadly on energy issues for being generally supportive of fossil fuels, or at least for not being in favor of outlawing fossil fuels. And one of the key challenges that Republicans face on this issue is that, you know, it, it's viewed as, well, if you support fossil fuels, you, you're bad on climate. And I believe that this narrative is a really damaging narrative right now. So I, I should say, I do not identify myself uh, as a Republican, or definitely I don't identify myself as a Democrat. I identify myself as pro-individual freedom and pro-genuine capitalism, which I don't think either of the parties stand for at all consistently now. Uh, but on energy, I definitely agree with Republicans many times more than I agree with most Democrats right now. And I think that it's a crucial year for energy because what Democrats are proposing on energy, I believe, is truly catastrophic for this country in terms of a Green New Deal. So one thing I've started to do is is offer to help any candidate who's interested in better messaging on energy, if they're generally pro-energy, pro-energy freedom. And I know that's mostly going to be Republicans, but I'd certainly help any Democrats on that. But I think it's really important to give a, a different perspective because we're in danger of really outlawing. I mean, if we look at the policies on the table that people are talking about, they're talking about outlawing fossil fuels and outlawing nuclear in the next several decades. And a lot of people think this is a good idea in part because they think it's going to protect us from climate uh, catastrophe. And so what I want to do today is share some ideas I have for talking points that Republicans can use. Again, anyone can use this, but I'm going to frame it in terms of Republicans because they are the ones being attacked for having what I regard as overall the right position on energy. That is, Americans should be free to use all forms of energy, so it's not like they have a, a specific support for fossil fuels, but we should be free to use all forms of energy, and certainly fossil fuels are vital to this country and to the world. And all of this is under attack right now because Republicans are viewed as, oh, well, you know, that's somehow bad on climate. So what I want to share is just some messaging that I've developed, and it's just a sample. So I have, uh, you know, my company, part of what we do is we create messaging for different organizations to help them when we agree with them and when they're trying to persuade stakeholders of pro-energy or pro-freedom or pro-human policies. We help them reframe the issues and come up with better messaging. And so what I'm doing this election is volunteering to help people with some of that because I would really like to see better ideas. So if, if, if you're involved in any kind of campaign and you find this compelling, feel free to reach out to me at alex at alexepstein.com and we'll try to help you not just on this issue, but on any kind of energy or environment related uh, issue, assuming we think you're generally taking the right pro-energy, pro-freedom, pro-human approach. Okay, let's just jump in. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share these talking points. Those of you who are watching, I'm mostly going to read them. Those of you who are listening, uh, you'll see. I'll, those of you who are watching, I'll be talking about what you see on the screen. Those of you who are listening, I'll read what's on the screen. And I'll go through these pretty quickly, but these are just, these are not all the talking points you need on climate, but I think these are some that can be particularly uh, powerful. And so, if, again, if people are interested in more, 
I would like to uh, help them. So you can reach out to me at alex at alexepstein.com. So at a high level, here's one thing that Republicans can definitely say. Democrats think we can lower global emissions through renewables-only policies that would make American energy completely unaffordable. Republicans recognize that the only practical way to lower global emissions is to encourage innovation that makes low-carbon energy cheap for everyone. So again, Democrats think we can lower global emissions through renewables-only policies that would make American energy completely unaffordable. Republicans recognize that the only practical way to lower global emissions is to encourage innovation that makes low-carbon energy cheap for everyone. So that's the highest level. And then I'll, I'll break it down, and then I'll break it down further. So here's kind of about seven points on the high level. So one is global CO2 emissions are on the rise, mostly due to developing countries. Number two, most countries will not lower their emissions as long as it is expensive to do so. Number three, Republicans recognize that the only way to lower emissions and benefit America is to promote innovation in lower cost, lower carbon energy. Number four, Republicans support freedom and innovation for affordable, reliable, emissions-free nuclear energy, while Democrats want to criminalize it. Number five, Republicans support freedom and innovation for lower-carbon natural gas, while Democrats oppose it. And then uh, number six, Republicans support innovation in low-cost carbon capture and storage, while many Democrats oppose it. And then finally, number seven, Democrats support America last policies that commit America to damaging emissions reductions while the rest of the world commits to nothing. So on a high level, I think these are all powerful points that Republicans can legitimately make because I think, again, overall, their track record on these issues is much better in terms of they are supporting policies that may lead to CO2 reductions, but that are doing so in a way that makes sense overall. That's not senselessly undercutting our ability to produce energy while not really doing anything about global emissions. So these talking points, they're, they're more on if the subject of if you want to lower emissions, what's at, what actually makes sense. There are also talking points that you need on why there's no uh, climate catastrophe. And I gave couple examples of that earlier, um, but that's another subject that I have talking points on. But here I want to focus on this specific issue of if you actually care about lowering emissions, this should be your focus. And Republicans have been doing many more of the right things versus Democrats are advocating things that will harm America and have no benefit by any standard. So I'm going to break these down. Global CO2 emissions are on the rise, mostly due to developing countries. Fossil fuels, oil, coal, natural gas, provide 80% of the world's energy. Fossil fuels are also the world's fastest growing source of energy. People around the world choose fossil fuels because they are by far the lowest cost way to meet most people's energy needs, whether for transportation, agriculture, or electricity. The U.S. currently generates only, the U.S. currently only generates one-sixth of the world's emissions, and that number will only get lower as China, India, and other underdeveloped countries continue to develop. Even if the U.S. got its emissions to zero, it would make little difference unless other countries lowered their emissions too. The next point. Most countries will not lower their emissions as long as it, ex as it is expensive uh, to do so. So when just one 
comment is that when, you know, when people are talking about their plans, the part of this is to make the focus on, okay, you need a global plan if you're claiming to lower emissions. Otherwise, you're just going to senselessly hurt Americans. You're not going to be a leader. You're going to be a sucker. So most countries will not lower their emissions as long as it is expensive to do so. Are China, and Indi are China India, and others going to stop using fossil fuels? Not a chance, as long as fossil fuels are the lowest cost option. Solar and wind are nowhere near close to replacing fossil fuels. Because the sun doesn't shine most of the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time, or even most of the time, solar energy and wind energy depend on reliable energy sources like coal, gas, and nuclear. After Germany started heavily promoting wind and solar, it saw its energy prices more than double since 2000. Another renewables leader, Portugal, has among the highest energy prices in Europe, causing 19% of Portuguese families to be unable to heat their homes in winter. There is no self-sufficient solar or wind generation system anywhere in the world or under development. That's why China, India, and other developing countries didn't commit to any meaningful emissions reductions in the Paris Climate Accords. And even if they did, their pledges would be non-binding. Next point. Republicans recognize that the only way to lower emissions and benefit America is to, prom to promote innovation and lower cost, lower carbon energy. Democrats think we can lower global emissions through renewables-only policies that would make American energy completely unaffordable. Unilaterally making ener American energy unaffordable would do nothing to lower global emissions, but it would cripple our economy as businesses flee to countries like China that have low-cost energy. By the way, for all these points, I have documentation, and I'll be sending that out uh, to my newsletter, but if you're interested in the documentation, you can also just email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Republicans recognize that the only way to lower emissions and benefit America is to promote innovation and lower cost, lower carbon energy. Republicans support win-win policies that lower the cost of energy and lower emissions. Next big point, Republicans support freedom and, inno and innovation for affordable, reliable, emissions-free nuclear energy while Democrats want to criminalize it. This is a killer point that, that Republicans should take advantage of because the Democrats in general are so bad on this. And at the very least, we can force all politicians to recognize that nuclear energy is a vital thing uh, for us to be free to pursue and to stop criminalizing it. That's why we support the criminalization of abundant, reliable, non-carbon nuclear power. As South Korea's experience demonstrates, with the right policies, nuclear power is cost-effective, at least for many people. Sweden gets 40% of its electricity from nuclear, and its electricity prices are below the European average. In the U.S., nuclear has been held back for decades by Democrat policies that make it almost impossible to build a nuclear reactor. How can Democrats claim to support emissions reductions if they oppose nuclear? Next big point. Republicans support freedom and innovation for lower carbon natural gas while Democrats oppose it. Republicans have supported policies that protect the freedom to frack, which has made us the world leader in lower carbon natural gas. We also support expanding our nation's pipeline capacity, which reduces emissions from flaring and venting while ensuring plentiful low-cost energy. If Democrats had succeeded in banning fracking, the U.S. would have had more expensive energy and more CO2 emissions. Republicans support innovation and low-cost carbon capture and storage, while many Democrats uh, oppose it. Republicans support innovation and low-cost carbon capture and storage. Low-cost carbon capture and storage would give us the benefits of low-cost fossil fuels without the side effect of uh, CO2 emissions or carbon emissions 
I, I usually prefer CO2 emissions. Many Democrats oppose carbon capture innovation because it discourages getting off fossil fuels. What matters to them more, reducing emissions or opposing fossil fuels? And so at a high level, Democrats support America last policies that commit America to damaging reduction emissions to damaging emissions reductions while the rest of the world commits to nothing. The Democrats ignore reality and pretend that if the US tries to lower its emissions using taxes or expen- or expensive unreliable power from solar and wind, other countries will follow suit. And then I just have a couple of quick points on different policies that this general approach applies to. So Democrats versus Republicans on the Green New Deal. Democrats support the Green New Deal, an un-American policy that would give the government total control over our energy economy, outlaw reliable, affordable energy from fossil fuels and nuclear, bankrupt us with levels of government spending we could never repay, have no meaningful impact on climate. Republicans have opposed the totalitarian Green New Deal, which would give the government total control over our energy economy, outlaw reliable, affordable energy from fossil fuels, and bankrupt us with levels of government spending we could never repay, yet still wouldn't have a meaningful impact on our climate. So that's the overall message that I think Republicans, again, I don't agree with Republicans on everything, but they're definitely in a much better position on the Green New Deal and have every right to say this. Democrats versus Republicans on the Paris Climate Accords. Republicans rejected the America Last Paris Climate Accords, which demanded that America increase the cost of living for every citizen, while the biggest emitters did nothing. Democrats wanted Americans to pay hundreds of billions of dollars to countries who made non-binding quote-unquote pledges to do exactly what they had already planned on doing. This Paris Climate Accords issue is a really important one to get right, because it was a really bad one, really bad policy, and it still has the moral high ground. Democrats versus Republicans on a carbon tax. Democrats support a carbon tax, which by making American energy more expensive would make everything more expensive. If America passed a carbon tax, even more industry would flee to flee the country to places without a carbon tax. That's not being a leader, that's being a sucker. Republicans reject a carbon tax and support low-carbon innovation instead. So notice the focus on if you actually care about lowering CO2 levels, then your focus needs to be on innovation that will make energy of that kind cheaper. It's not a workable global thing to just make your own energy more expensive. That's just senseless destruction, and yet that's what the Democrat uh, or Democratic policy amounts to. And finally, this may come up, you know, the clean power plan. So Democrats versus Republicans on the clean power plan. The Obama administration's so-called clean power plan would have shut down power plants decades before the end of their useful life, driving up energy costs and threatening our access to reliable power. We replaced the clean power plan with the affordable clean energy rule or ACE rule that gave the states the flexibility to reduce power plant CO2 emissions in the most cost-effective way possible. So these are just some of the points I think one can make about climate. There are a lot more climate points and there are a lot more points about other issues such as there's the issue of what's called American energy independence. There's more, I think a lot more detail needed on uh, renewables. So we have a lot of Uh, good stuff on that. There's a big issue in terms of grid reliability, where a lot of what is being advocated under under the Green New Deal will be terrible for the reliability of our grid. And if you want to talk about a catastrophe, it's hard to think of something more catastrophic than regular power outages, and yet we're headed in that direction. So there are lots and lots of opportunities for pro-freedom 
pro-energy candidates, for better or worse, that means Republican candidates for the most part in this election year, for those candidates to make the case that their policies are much better for the lives of Americans and better for people around the world. It's very upsetting to see people advocating ruinous policies that will not really help anyone and yet have them taking the moral high ground. So that's what's gotten me interested in this issue. So if you find any of this compelling and you'd like help for any kind of campaign that you're connected to, again, email me at alex at alexepstein.com and I will, I and my team will try to help you. All right. Final segment of the day, double accelerator contributions. So I've uh, talked in the last several episodes about our accelerator program. If you want to know more about it, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. The basic idea is that particularly in this time where COVID has been very disruptive uh, for us, as well as for many other people. Uh, We have a lot of goals that we're trying to pursue, my team and I, including getting election messaging to people, including being more public about these crucial issues of energy freedom and human flourishing, and including finishing and publicizing the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0 and an essay based on that to come out this election season. So a whole bunch of plans, as I talk about on the website, industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. A lot of those plans are in jeopardy or will be shrunk uh, just because it's, you know, business has been a lot harder. And so if you really like our work, one thing you can do is become an accelerator. So that's what we call a contributor because it's really somebody who's accelerating our progress above all by helping us with our research and development costs and then our the costs of promoting these ideas. So if you are interested, good news. I got I learned last week that the Prometheus Foundations, the Prometheus Foundation is created by the businessman Carl Barney, that they have offered to match the next $25,000 in contributions by accelerator. So if you're considering becoming an accelerator and you know whatever amount of money you give until we get $25,000, that will be matched. So you can think of it as your acceleration is getting doubled. So I hope that that's a motivation. You can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate to learn more. If you contribute and then it turns out we're over the 25,000, then we'll tell you and re- happily refund your money, uh, if you want, but expect it, it'll probably take a couple weeks for that to happen. So really hope that you contribute. So thanks so much to Prometheus Foundation and Carl Barney and also Craig Biddle, a longtime friend of mine who runs uh, the Prometheus Foundation for their generous support on this issue. And yeah, we're excited about moving our plans forward. Also, thanks for all the listeners of this show or now viewers of this show who've helped out. It's been uh, tremendous to get that support both financially but also morally. I know it's it's you know a tough time for almost everyone, so it means a lot that people are supporting our cause in this difficult time. Okay, that is it for this week. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. If you want my book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, you can get a preview at industrialprogress.com. Actually, the best place to get it, you can get one there, 
or you can also get it at moralcaseforfossilfuels.com, or you can just check it out uh, on Amazon. There will be a new version coming out next year, but if you haven't read the first one, that's worth getting as well. You can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at industrialprogress.com or most directly at, at alexepsteinlist.com. And once again, to support our efforts, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I know I've been going long, but there's a lot of important stuff about energy and there's a lot of important stuff about freedom. So again, hope it's valuable. Love getting your feedback at Alex at alexepstein.com. And I particularly hope to hear from some of you uh, about if you're interested in any kind of help with election messaging. This is something where we're in a period where it's all we're already seeing opponents of fossil fuels and of energy freedom trying to leverage uh, all the COVID uh, pandemic and they're trying to leverage that to oppose fossil fuels. And as insofar as the COVID issue dies down, which I hope happens to some extent for many reasons, we're going to see the, you know, the, the anti-fossil fuel movement is not going away. So this is for me, this is a high leverage way of helping out a lot of people in a time when people are really short on budget. So I hope that people take advantage of that. All right, that's it for this week. Until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.